I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. You know, if you listen to the show regularly, you probably know on Wednesdays, I do love spending time talking about health and wellness. So today, we're going to revisit some of my recent Wellness Wednesday conversations. First, do you remember last fall and winter when so many of us were coughing and wheezing and feeling achy? We were facing a triple-demic of respiratory diseases at that time. Nobody wants to see that again. So health officials are reminding us to get our vaccines. Now, back in September, just before the new COVID-19 booster rolled out, I talked with a vaccine expert and a pediatric nurse about the importance of immunizations. Dr. Greg Poland is an internal medicine physician at Mayo Clinic in Rochester and an infectious disease expert. He's also the founder and director of the Mayo Vaccine Research Group and editor-in-chief of the medical journal Vaccine. Shawyanga Beecher is a pediatric nurse practitioner with Hennepin County Healthcare. She's also medical director of the Mobile Pediatric Clinic. I asked Dr. Poland why so many people were not planning to get the COVID-19 booster. You know, the biggest problem, I think, Angela, is that we are fatigued not only of the vaccine, but of the pandemic. Mm. And as a result, mentally, we, we, we just we already have a large what psychologists would call pool of worry. And this is one that we feel like we can kind of shove to the side. But that's not what the virus is doing. The virus uh, is going to intermittently surge, mutate, cause new cases in a population that has now not up to date on boosters, not distancing and not wearing masks. But doctor, I have to tell you, I I understand the vaccine fatigue. I don't even want to talk about this, but we need to talk about this. I think that's a conversation a lot of people are having, like, I want to know, but I don't want to know because I don't want to do because I just don't want to deal with this anymore. Is that a common reaction? Exactly. That's what I mean by, you know, our pool of attention or our pool of worry. And this is one more thing that people don't want to have to deal with. But that's a mistake. I mean, when you look at it, Compared to 2019, one out of every 279 Americans is now dead of COVID, a disease we can prevent. Shayanga, uh, last year heading into fall, we got hit with an early flu season and a bad season of RSV and COVID. Are, are you thinking about or have some concerns about another uh, triple-demic, as they're calling it, this year? Um, it's hard to say because we're still starting in the season. I think... Um, given what Dr. Polinit says about our immunization rates and this fatigue, my concerns are that we might be hit with another respiratory surge, which means kids in and out of school because they're they're sick, mm-hmm. parents in and out of work because they're caring for their kids, and really busy um, hospital and clinics with waiting rooms full okay. of patients. But are you also seeing this vaccine fatigue? People are like, no. <laughs> We don't want to talk about this. We don't want to deal with it. Are you seeing that as well? I'm seeing some vaccine fatigue. And to be fair, this is a a time where we had back-to-back new vaccines. We had not just the COVID vaccine and the various rollouts, depending on your age, but now we have an RSV vaccine, whereas previously there was a a gap in time where there were no new vaccines. It was just routine. You get your childhood immunizations, you get your annual flu shot, and that's all we heard about in the news. But now it's inundating our, our lives, and I think some of us are tired of it. Hmm. So one of the big headlines um, happening right now that we see a lot, uh, Dr. Poland, has to do with a new COVID-19 booster. Uh, how is this new uh, vaccine different from the previous ones, Dr. Poland? 
So this vaccine, much like the other ones, will be based on a variant of COVID-19. This was selected back in June, and the predominant variant then was XBB 1.5. But COVID keeps changing right under our noses, no pun intended. (laughs) And uh, what's circulating now is not XBB 1.5. It's EG5. It's FL 1.5.1 and XBB 1.5. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. I can't even keep up with the names of these things. Okay, so I I know it's a it's a potpourri of these different variants. So what does this mean? Well, for the most part, all of these variants are Omicron descendants. Think of them as cousins of Omicron. And the new variant vaccine or booster is also a cousin of Omicron. I expect that this new booster absolutely will have a quantifiable decrease in deaths and severe disease. What's an open question is how effective will it be against asymptomatic infection or mild or maybe even moderate infection? But if you have a healthy underlying immune system and you get this booster, I think you will not end up in the hospital. You will not end up on a mechanical ventilator and you won't die. And and that is the, the, the motivating factor to get whatever new booster or vaccine that's available, even if it's necessarily not going to uh, attack the specific variant that you may get. Exactly. And two other things to prevent complications. And let's not forget long COVID. All right, let's, let's, re- long COVID. let's revisit long COVID uh, because okay. I'm trying to remember what it is. And that's kind of part of the problem, yeah. right? Memory loss and uh, brain fog, right? That's long COVID, correct? Yeah, those are some of the symptoms. Fatigue is a common one. Uh, symptoms of what we call a small fiber neuropathy, meaning people have tingling and a feeling like uh, vibration inside their body. And there's just abdominal pain. There's a host of symptoms that can occur. And these symptoms are sufficient oftentimes where people can't work. It interferes with family. It has a very real economic effect for a, a number of people. So it's a serious complication of COVID that can be not entirely prevented, but dramatically reduced in risk by getting uh, the the variant boosters, and if you get COVID, in getting treated for it. And uh, anything that that you um, have noticed, um, Shayanga, uh, about long COVID, long COVID, uh, people who suffer from it are still suffering. In some cases, this has been going on for two or three years from them. Just in your personal circle of friends, have you seen people with Talk about this. I've had some friends um, and colleagues who have had long COVID. I've also seen a couple of older adolescents that have had the follow up from COVID. Um, and it's not just the, um, you know, inability to carry on with their daily functions. It's also all those follow up visits and monitoring your case and c- engaging with healthcare providers for more than just that one visit, but long term. And that's time consuming. Right. And so, and, and they notice it because it affects their ability to focus in school or. Fatigue. Fatigue. Um, fatigue, the aches, the tingling. Mm. And, you know, if we look at some of um, the, the numbers uh, across the state that, that we have access to, um, if you look at, at how we're doing with COVID vaccinations from the um, health department, the state health department show that f- uh, fewer than a third of Minnesotans uh, over the age of 16 are up to date. 
with the recommended COVID vaccines. Again, fewer than a third of Minnesotans over the age of 16 are up to date with the recommended COVID vaccines. And that means only one in three older teenagers and adults are fully vaccinated. The rates are better for uh, people who are older. More than two thirds of Minnesotans over the age of 65 are fully vaccinated. So that's two out of every three uh, older adults. And then we also know that children are the least likely to be vaccinated for COVID. And and what have you seen um, in working with families with young children uh, as they talk about COVID? Shayanga. I think especially with children, we have a whole bunch of vaccines that kids need to be up to date, um, especially between that first and second year of life. We're, we're giving them their routine immunizations. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a lot to ask them to consider not just a flu shot, but a COVID shot as well. Um, I think the other part is people don't think that kids can get sick or severely sick or hospitalized with COVID. And that's not true. We have seen kids. We have seen them in inpatient wards with severe COVID infections. Um, the challenge, I think, will be going forward to include COVID as a part of our routine immunizations like we have flu and to anticipate that every year there will be a, a, mm-hmm. a vaccine that's better equipped to deal with the circulating strain. And Dr. Polin, what do you think of those um, numbers when we look at how Minnesota is doing? Yeah, it's really unfortunate. When you look at COVID in children, um, and if you look at people o- younger than age five over the last couple of years of the pandemic, 45,000 children under the age of five were hospitalized COVID. One out of four of them that were hospitalized ended up in the ICU, and about a 1,000 of them died. Now, that's preventable. Uh, we give vaccines against diseases to prevent death and complications with far less morbidity and mortality. For example, before there was a vaccine, uh, we had maybe 100 children a year die of chickenpox. Well, chickenpox is a routine vaccine. We don't even think about it Mm -hmm. now. We just routinely administer it. And in fact, it reminds me, I just want to compliment Shayanga. She's there with a van giving these kids immunizations and talking to their parents about the importance of this. So uh, just a moment to congratulate her and thank her for what she's <laughs> doing you, for Minnesotans. Yeah, let's talk more about that mobile pediatric uh, clinic. Uh, it is just a van, right? And uh, <laughs> it, it, it moves through communities. Why was it started, um, uh, Shayanga? So this uh, mobile unit began in May of 2020. So imagine back to early pandemic days, mm. shelter in place orders. Uh, we were limiting capacity in clinic so that we couldn't even see your full family. We could only see one sibling at a time. And people were really nervous about coming into clinic, let alone even going to the grocery store. Um, And we recognized that there was going to be a precipitous drop in childhood immunization rates. And the last thing that we wanted in this pandemic was to have a measles outbreak in the middle of a a pandemic. Um, So we got our team together. We put the cart before the horse, so to speak. And we got out into the community and helped get kids up to date on their immunizations. Um, since then, we've... Real- what was the response? That, uh, Fantastic. A, a van I mean, has okay, first up? of all, yeah. Like, like, uh, really? Uh, I'm uh, supposed to take my baby in there and you're going to put a, 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 a white needle? white van and right. give your kid a needle in the back of this white van. Uh-huh. A little bit sketchy. Yeah. But really impactful. We could deliver everything to your doorstep. Why not healthcare? And for some families, we mm. recognized soon that these barriers to accessing care was not pandemic specific. Um, some of them were always there and just exacerbated by the pandemic now. And families actually appreciated the service. And sometimes it's not vaccine hesitancy. It's not vaccine fatigue. It's just vaccine access. 
where can I get it? When can I get it? If I'm a single parent working multiple jobs, caring for my elderly and my kids, multiple kids, how do I find time to get down to a clinic? We just heard from Shay Yanga Beecher, a pediatric nurse practitioner with Hennepin Healthcare. She's also medical director of that mobile pediatric clinic. And Dr. Greg Poland, an internal medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic, founder and director of the Mayo Vaccine Research Group. And a reminder to you now that the COVID-19 booster, it is now available as well as those flu shots. Now back to one of our recent conversations about health and wellness. A few months ago, we spent the hour talking about why today's kids are growing up with worse vision than their parents. Screen time and less time outdoors may be to blame. We also talked about prevention, screening, and new treatments. I had two eye doctors join me for that discussion. Dr. Mary Gregory is a board-certified optometrist based in Monticello. She specializes in children's vision and learning. And Dr. Derek Horky is an ophthalmologist with St. Paul Eye Clinic. He does comprehensive eye care for adults and has additional expertise in treating glaucoma. Now, I started the conversation by asking Dr. Horky if he's been hearing about an increase in nearsightedness in young children and why it might be happening. In the pediatric ophthalmology community, they've been talking about this a lot more recently. It's kind of one of the, the hot button topics, and it's mostly about trying to figure out what's the real reason for it, how it's happening, what are some risk factors that we can try to control, and what are the best treatment options for these kids to help their vision going forward. And so uh, what do we think is happening? And what, is it, what does it even look like? I mean, how is it first being diagnosed, do you think? Is it coming? Is it being noticed in school where teachers are noticing it? Or are the kids themselves reporting it? Well, I think there's a a mix of things. You know, there's a lot of programs these days where kids going into preschool or pre-K, they have eye screenings associated with them to make sure the kids can see and they can fail those and then end up in, you know, my office or Dr. Gregory's office. And then there's also situations where that nearsightedness doesn't start right away. And maybe while they're in grade school, they seem to be doing okay. And then Maybe they're not as engaged in the class and things like that as they're getting older, and then you come to find out they can't see as well. Mm -hmm. The problem is that sometimes kids can see very well initially, Mm -hmm. and then as this myopia starts, then all of a sudden they can't see as well, but they don't. The kids sometimes don't tell their parents or their teachers right away. Right. And they, they may not even be aware that it's a problem. And then what do we know about just in, in general, when people have vision issues, how does that affect your life when it's uh, not treated, has not been diagnosed, and, and you're just walking around and not really fully able to see well? What's the impact of that? Well, I think the hard thing with kids is they have this incredible ability to do something called accommodate. So they can kind of almost squint through things a lot and get by. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they don't really say as much because they feel like there's ways they can get by to do it. Whereas in adults, when you can't see something, you can't work, you can't drive, you know, it's a lot easier for an adult to say, listen, I'm, I'm struggling to see the road signs while I'm driving to work now, or, you know, I'm in meetings and I can't read my documents or see my, you know, screen as well anymore. Mm. Dr. Gregory, uh, again, uh, you've been giving eye exams to children, and you were saying you are seeing this uh, increase in nearsightedness in kids. And, and tell me about that and, and how uh, these patients are coming to you and what they're reporting. 
Yeah, so we used to see the the failed screening slips coming through more ages, you know, 11, 12, 13. And really in the last decade, that's been slipping a little lower. So I'm seeing children um, with these failed screenings or just coming in for routine exams and struggling to see distance at 9, 10. Um, since the pandemic, I'm seeing more and more children, even at that six, seven, eight years old. Oftentimes, they're not aware that they're not able to see far away. In their world, their space, they can see everything near, nearsighted, meaning they can see up close. And so when your world is all clear up close and you're not driving or doing long distance activities, sometimes it's hard to detect that things are changing. So what do we know about what's causing the increase? As I think about the lives of young kids, um, definitely because of distance learning and the pandemic, they were inside their homes more, they were getting more screen time. Uh, Is that thought to have played a role in why we're seeing more vision problems? It definitely has. And that was a suspicion even before the pandemic. The theory is that, yeah, children are inside. Um, They're not spending as much time outside. And while our whole culture has changed over time um, to being more nearsighted and near focused on things in our own space, you know, we're wondering how is that impacting? And and we're definitely seeing that. Um, The biggest things that we can do as parents for our kids is really get them outside the thought is kind of twofold. They're relaxing their eyes off in the distance, off all the way to the horizon uh, with nothing constricting their view. So Mm. looking off in the distance is very relaxing. Your eyes don't really have to work hard to do that. But the second thing that they're thinking is even more impactful is just the sunlight. Um, getting kids outside in the sun, the uh, amount of sunlight, the brighter the light, the more um, dopamine is actually released in the retina. And that is one theory on why the, the nearsightedness isn't changing as much. Um, that's more impactful. What we find is less than 12 years old. Once you are becoming nearsighted, being out in the sun isn't necessarily strongly going to change that factor. But before you become nearsighted, it can slow down that progression or even reduce your risk of becoming nearsighted. Wow. The the outside part of this, the outdoor time, um, that makes sense to me. Because if you think about what you're seeing when you're maybe out on a playground, um, you're looking at things at a distance, right? Like you're using your eyes in yep. a different way. And so you, you actually prescribe outdoor time as a, a, a treatment or prevention for nearsightedness to, to parents and their kids. All the time. Really, the research shows we need about two hours outside time every day. And Dr. Uh, Dr. Gregory, remind me, when do children even get uh, eye exams? The eyes are not checked as regularly as, you know, just those well baby checks, for example. Yeah, which is really unfortunate. And um, we do have um, a program called Infant C. Providers across the United States volunteer to do no charge vision screenings for infants. And so we do a lot of those in my office between six and 12 months old. At that point, we're checking to make sure eyes are healthy, that they're starting off in the right place, um, that development's on track. 
and also an opportunity to educate parents. Don't forget about vision. And if we can do a very first full eye exam at three years old, we're going to catch any of those concerns to begin with. All right. So Again, the next, mm-hmm. yeah, the next time we love to see kids would be at kindergarten. If we could get all kids in for not just a vision screening, but an actual eye exam at kindergarten, we can be looking at their risk factors for mm-hmm. nearsightedness and then be guiding parents on proper visual hygiene to reduce those risks. Uh, Dr. Horky, when I introduced you, I-, I said that you specialize, you have an expertise with glaucoma. Let's talk about glaucoma. Um, and I, I recognize this from the, the eye exam I get uh, every year and the little puffs of air. Nobody likes a little puff of air in the eyes. But <laughs> Dr. Horky, what can you tell us about glaucoma? So glaucoma is a set of conditions and what they all have in common is damage to the optic nerve. And it's typically associated with a higher than normal eye pressure. And the vision loss we get from glaucoma tends to be in the periphery of our vision first before it moves to the central vision. That So that's why sometimes people can lose a lot of vision before it's even diagnosed, because mm-hmm. oftentimes, if you haven't been getting eye exams, you could lose a lot of vision and not really notice it till it's affecting your central vision, which is very late in the condition more often than not. And and what made you want to uh, focus that as you're going through your training or, or working as an eye uh, doctor? Why did you want to focus on glaucoma? So with glaucoma, you are able to kind of uh, set up these lifelong relationships with patients. You know, you you could see somebody and diagnose them, you know, when they're in their 40s or 50s. And, you know, they could be your patient for 40 years. So (laughs) there's a lot of patients who I've been, you know, I've been here with St. Paul Eye Clinic for a little over four years now. And I already feel like some of these people are part of my family just because how Mm -hmm. often they come in to see me. And what are the risk factors for glaucoma? So some of the biggest risk factors are family history and ethnicity. You know, uh, African-Americans, Hispanics especially, they have a higher risk of getting it. And specifically with African-Americans, one thing that I do notice a lot of is they often get diagnosed at a younger age and their glaucoma is worse or progresses more quickly if it's untreated. So what can we do to reduce the chances of developing glaucoma or is there anything you can do? So one of the big things is oftentimes, you know, some of these older individuals will come in with their family members. And if they have glaucoma, I look over at the family members and I say, when's the last time you had your eyes checked? Because like I said, family history plays a big Mm -hmm. role in that. So, you know, as the eye doctor, if I see someone who's with them, you know, if I'm seeing like an 80 year old lady and she has her, you know, 50 year old son with her or something like that, I say, when's the last time you had your eyes checked? Have you been looked at for this? And so there's a lot of people who go a long time without getting eye exams and don't necessarily mm-hmm. understand the importance of it. Uh, what do we need to know about protecting our eyes from sunlight, Dr. Horky? Well, I would say that it's always good to wear sunglasses outside. Uh, there are definitely things that can happen to your eyes from long-term UV light exposure. For instance, there are people who do more outdoor jobs like landscapers. They can get these benign growths on their eyes that can affect their prescription. Another thing is that excessive UV exposure can cause more rapid development of cataracts. So, for instance, my children, when they're outside playing baseball, they have sunglasses. They're not super expensive or anything, but even a lot of the cheap pairs from Target and other places like that, they they still block enough UV light to help protect the kids. And Dr. Gregory, uh, what do you want to say about protecting uh, our children's eyes from sunlight? If we could get kids into sunglasses, that's great. Some children aren't able sensory-wise to be able to wearing that. At least 
keep a wide brimmed hat to cut down on the amount of exposure, encourage the little ones to be in the shade or, um, you know, covered up. Uh, but if you can start right away as infants, just putting those little sunglasses on them and get them adapted to that, that's going to be better long term. That was uh, Dr. Mary Gregory, a board-certified optometrist based in Monticello who specializes in children's vision and learning. We also heard from Dr. Derek Horky, an ophthalmologist with St. Paul Eye Clinic. He does comprehensive eye care for adults and has that additional expertise in treating glaucoma. Uh, A great conversation about what we're seeing now in the vision of children. Now back to one of my recent conversations about health and wellness. Uh, Again, that's what we talk about each Wednesday here at 9 a.m. I recently looked into kidney disease and what researchers now know about the signs and the best treatments and about kidney transplants. I spoke with Dr. Naeem Issa, a nephrologist who treats people with kidney disease and transplants at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And we also heard from Jennifer Kramer Miller. Now, Jennifer serves uh, uh, as the board chair of the National Kidney Foundation Serving Minnesota. And she has a memoir, a book called Incurable Optimist, Living with Illness and Chronic Hope. And it describes her life with chronic kidney disease, as well as four kidney transplants. I started our conversation by asking Jennifer how she was first diagnosed. Um, When I was 22, I was a college graduate. I had a PR position. I was ready to launch, happy and healthy. And then one day I woke up and my eyes felt puffy. I felt off. Something just wasn't right. So I went to a doctor, like you do, thinking maybe I had a flu or, you know, something that would require an antibiotic, something regular. But I quickly learned that I had protein in my urine, which is a sign of kidney damage. And I needed to have a biopsy to determine the cause and extent of that damage. And that day that I saw that doctor learned I had kidney damage, I didn't realize at the time, but that was the day that my life changed forever. So um, I've been through quite a long journey. As you mentioned, I've had four kidney transplants, um, but I'm doing very well. And I've been so supported by the miracles that are available to treat kidney disease. And writing this book was really important to me because I am a peer mentor for kidney patients. And I talk Mm -hmm. to them one-on-one on how to deal with this disease and how to live well with managing, you know, kidney complications. And I really wanted to offer something that could be more broadly distributed. Mm. A big motivation for this, I'm sure too, is like you're finding out, as I'm finding out, a lot of people really just don't know a lot about kidneys and and how they function and what they do. And so uh, Dr. E said to me, they are sort of like these mystery organs. Uh, Tell us a little bit beginning with, you know, where they're located. I want to automatically go to my lower back when I think of kidneys. Mm -hmm. We have two kidneys each about the size of a fist, or let's say a computer mouse. Uh, They're located in the back at the lowest ribcage level. And each kidney contains up to a million filtering units. We call those nephrons. What they do actually, they remove waste products and excess fluid from the body through the urine. Mm. So what are the first signs that something is wrong with them? Well, let me define chronic kidney disease. This is a condition where those small filtering units are damaged over time and cannot filter blood as well as they should. 
Because of this, excess fluid and waste from blood remain in the body and may cause significant health problems. Actually, the main health problem related to kidney disease is heart disease. And this is personal for you. I understand that as you were were growing up, you sort of always knew you wanted to be a doctor and you wanted to focus on this. And, And tell us why. Well, I'm originally from Lebanon, and growing up, uh, you know, my father was actually healthy. He was in his mid-40s, and all of a sudden, uh, like as Jennifer was saying, started to uh, have swelling and all over and retaining fluids and felt very ill. Went to his uh, general practitioner, and uh, they did some blood work, and Uh, He came back home and said, I need to start dialysis. This was really uh, a shock to the family. And at that time, I was uh, only about 10 years old and decided to be a kidney uh, doctor. The problem was he did not receive the the care that he deserved because uh, this was uh, happening during the civil war in Lebanon. Um, and he passed away a couple years later on dialysis simply because, you know, he did not receive uh, appropriate care. Mm. And, and Jennifer, when you hear a story like that, what goes through your mind? Oh, my gosh. I, my heart goes out to you and your dad. I can't imagine you as a 10-year-old having to see that happen. And I know that for myself and a lot of kidney patients, we are so grateful that you were inspired to go into nephrology because... Dr. Issa is a very caring and compassionate nephrologist. I can just say that from experience. You know, I'm so glad, Angela, too, that we're talking Mm -hmm. about this. I think you're right. It's almost like kidneys need a better publicist because I think we hear so much about (laughs) brains and breasts and heart health, but we really don't hear that much about kidney health. And, you know, I never really appreciated all the things that they did for me when they were working. And then suddenly... When I had kidney failure in six months after that first doctor appointment, I really realized how important those little organs are. And I kind of wished I would have appreciated them more when they were in their good shape. Well, we want to talk about it today because, you know, I I do feel that this is an area where we would all benefit from more education about it. And and Dr. Issa, I want to ask this question about uh, who is most at risk for kidney disease? It's actually incredibly common and becoming more and more common in our society. In fact, it is a public health crisis in the U.S. that is often overlooked and uh, underappreciated. We estimate that one third of American adults at risk for developing kidney disease later in life, and one in seven already have chronic kidney disease. That's a whopping 37 million uh, U.S. adults. The problem is about 40% of people with very severely reduced kidney function are not aware they have chronic kidney disease. Um, In the U.S., diabetes and high blood pressure are the leading causes of uh, kidney failure, Mm -hmm. uh, and that accounts for about three out of four of new cases. And it's, uh, as you mentioned, it's it's, it's often silent until patients reach late-stage kidney disease. So many people with early-stage chronic disease are not aware they have it. It just catches them by surprise. And what happens when we look at race, particularly first with Black Americans? You know, uh, we know that African Americans are more than three times as likely to have kidney failure than uh, white people. There are many explanations why is that, because African Americans uh, uh, have less access to health care. 
so they're often diagnosed late. And there is actually an issue with uh, more diabetes and hypertension in African-Americans mm-hmm. uh, than in white people. It's, it's sort of all, it's all connected. All right. And a public health crisis. I did not know that. It's classified as that. Kidney disease is. It is indeed. Let's take a, a phone call uh, right now in Apple Valley. Jeff is on the phone. Good morning, Jeff. Thank you for joining the conversation. Yeah, I have. Uh, I'm I'm on dialysis myself. Okay. I was diagnosed in 2010, and I've been dealing with it like like I'm not. I and I've and I've just been on dial. I've just just hit my one year anniversary of being on dialysis. Mm-hmm. It and- is. Uh, it's it's like <laughs> it's. It's harder than I ever imagined, quite frankly. So t- um, what does dialysis mean for you? Uh, first, how do you describe so what happens in, in dialysis treatment? I go through two six-liter bags of fluid a night. What they do is they use, it uses sugar to pull, the, to pull the excess fluid out of myself. And that's every, so every, every night? night? It's like I'm having two Snickers bars mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. A night. So it, it's, a, it's a great way to put on weight. <laughs> and and your diagnosis, uh, how did that come about? Were you walking around not yeah. a- aware, or how did you get diagnosed? So I just basically went in for a standard checkup, and my blood pressure was a little high, and I was, I, you know, like I was in pretty decent shape. And then the doctor said, "Oh, this seems weird. Let's run a blood test." And I get a call from her as I'm driving into work the next day, saying, "Hey, you've got stage three, almost stage four kidney disease." Mm. My world changed that day, like. I was on prednisone, 60 milligrams of prednisone, and that was like, holy cow, if you want to see what a mood shift is like. Oh, Jeff, I can really relate to you. uh, (laughs) I'm certain you can. What are you hearing Jeff's story, uh, Jennifer? Well, it sounds like you had undiagnosed kidney disease until a late stage. How many stages are there? So he goes in and he's like, you're stage three and four. And so mm-hmm. what do you hear there? Was there an opportunity that, I mean, he's getting his annual exam. So why is it now right. he's in his third or fourth stage of this and it's just getting detected? Uh, we have five stages of chronic kidney disease. Start by stage one, when the kidney function is more than 90% and so forth. Stage three is when the kidney function is between 30 to 60%. And stage five, this is unfortunately when someone needs to be supported with uh, dialysis or need a kidney transplant. And Jeff brings up actually a very important uh, point um, Unfortunately, I think he's lucky he lived with chronic disease for such a long time because the average life expectancy for a patient on dialysis is only 5 to 10 years. Uh, Though for someone between the age of 70 to 74, life expectancy is closer to 4 years on dialysis. And that brings me back to the most important point is screening, screening, screening. I cannot emphasize the importance of screening for chronic kidney disease. So when I go in for for my annual exam, should I say to my Mm -hmm. doctor, I want to be screened for kidney disease? Please do whatever test you need to do for my kidneys? We do not recommend uh, general screening for everyone. Those people who have diabetes, they have to be screened every year. And it's actually... Uh, it is not a cumbersome screening, just a blood work uh, mm-hmm. to check the creatinine level and check the urine for uh, protein in the urine. Mm-hmm. Uh, those who have high blood pressure, those who are overweight, and that's uh, we underestimate that as obesity uh, increases the risk for chronic kidney disease. Mm-hmm. Those people who take anti-inflammatory painkillers, uh, we call them the NSAIDs, non-steroidal, such as ibuprofen and such. Those 
people who take those medications on a regular basis are at risk. And anyone who's older than 60 years, uh, I think, should be screened for chronic kidney disease. And uh, as we mentioned as well, if you have some ethnic backgrounds, such as being African-American or Hispanic, think uh, need to be tested and uh, on regular basis for chronic kidney disease. There is no national guidelines to screen those people, but I think on yearly basis, getting urine test and uh, blood test through your primary care physician, I think that's, that uh, saves lives. That was Dr. Naeem Issa, a nephrologist who treats people with kidney disease and kidney transplants at Mayo Clinic. I also spoke with Jennifer Kramer Miller, who serves as board chair of the National Kidney Foundation, Serving Minnesota, and her memoir is titled Incurable Optimist, Living with Illness and Chronic Hope, and it describes her life with chronic kidney disease as well as four kidney transplants. We spoke back in August. Now, you can find the rest of that conversation about kidney disease uh, on my podcast. Just search for NPR News with Angela Davis wherever you get your podcasts and listen when it's convenient for you. You can find uh, uh, most of my uh, recent shows there on the podcast. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m. 